please turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, find verses 2 to 6, where we'll focus our attention this morning. The thrust of our passage brings to mind the words of our Savior on the night before he was to die in the upper room with his disciples. John chapter 17, verses 14 to 16 says this. Jesus is praying to his Father. He says, I have given them your word, speaking of the disciples, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Believers, we are not of the world, and yet, here we are. So how can we engage in a Christ-honoring life? In a world that isn't ours and often doesn't want us. Real Christ-following Christians are always, as our passage will help us understand, outsiders. And yet to be obedient to all that God has called us to, we have to live in this world. So how can we find this Christ-honoring life in a world that isn't ours? Colossians is a wonderful book to teach just that truth, written to those in a down-and-out place without a bright future, written to many who seem to be struggling with the utter sufficiency of the gospel and their salvation being in Christ by grace alone through faith alone. Paul exalts Christ over all things. He says, I understand that you have problems, you have theological and practical struggles in this life, but let me give you the solution that's putting Christ above all of these things. He explains the wonder of God's work on our behalf through salvation where Christ is the victor. He delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and God has brought us not just out of the enemy relationship, but into his family to be his beloved children. When the Father looks at us, it's more than acceptance. He looks at us with love. He looks at us as a child. What a salve for the soul of brothers and sisters who surely looked around in their life in Colossae and thought, is this it? Is there more? Paul says, yes, and there's more in Christ. He says we have all we need in Christ. And if you remember the near context back at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, there has been a heavenly ingredient baked into all of what we've seen in Colossians as far as practical application. This world is not our home. This country is not where we're from. And so we seek the things that are above. We set our hearts and minds on things that are above. When we're recreated in Christ, we're made new creations. We come with this manual that we call the Bible, and we come with a a stamped-on origin that isn't here. I love to buy America. I think that's a great thing. Buy American. I, all about it. We have the best craftsmen in the world. But the truth is, for all of us, if you're in Christ, you're an import. You were not made here. You were made in heaven. If you're in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. If you're in Christ, the final destination on your GPS is always the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, 
And so how we long for heaven at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3 affects and influences all the things that Paul is teaching us throughout the rest of his letter to the Colossians. And because we value most what God values and we pursue what God says to pursue, and we set our hearts in heaven, we set our minds in heaven, because we value these things and we live with passion set there, then we treasure what God treasures. And what does God treasure? When you read Colossians chapter 3, you see he treasures us when we see that we're to treasure each other. We put on then, because we treasure one another as God's chosen Ones, Colossians 3.12, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, loving and forgiving one another. Why? Because all that we do together, collectively and individually is all to bring glory to God with hearts overflowing with thanksgiving. That's Colossians 3.17. That extends from Sunday to Monday to every day. From all of our life, that's what we do and how we live, whether it's the family code, the reality of how we live as family, or the work realities of our life, all of these things are influenced by the fact that our minds are set in heaven. Our sanctification, our church life, our home life, our work life, all of life is to be lived with our hearts and minds set in heaven. And Paul teaches us that with those with minds set in heaven, our hearts are, are formed to another world. Our desires are passionate for the other world, and yet here we are living in this world. So how do we live in this world? Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6 is the big picture of how we live in this world. And Paul makes no apologies for the difficulties presented. He offers no escapes for the struggles that are inevitable. And he's, there's no caveats for the realities that we are outsiders to those of this world, because we're not of this world. If you obey the Lord's instruction and the words from Paul and his wisdom, you will not fit into this world. And so that being true, how do we live as outsiders? How can we thrive in a world that is not ours? How can we be good, biblical, worldly Christians? Well, please stand from me and hear from Paul, Colossians chapter Four, verses 2 to 6, the word of the living God. Colossians 4, 2 to 6, Paul begins, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this instruction. I pray that you'll help us to hear it, to heed it. Pray that you'll humble us to come underneath your word and allow your truth to dictate how we should live. Father, we know what you say for us is best, but it's hard. So we ask for your help to see beyond ourselves, to see the beauty of what you offer here in a life that is just and always lived for you. 
Help us to live in this world in a way that never fits in, but always betrays that we are not from here. And we don't want to stay here because we want to be with our true king. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Paul is answering the question the Colossians need to ask. And Paul is answering a question today that Christians need to ask. How do Christians thrive in a world that isn't theirs? This world is not our home. This world is not ours to rule. This world is not ours. And this world views us as outsiders. Paul speaks of other people as outsiders. The reality is we're outsiders to them. So how can we thrive? Well, Paul really just gives you two rules to dominate your entire life if you're going to thrive in this world that is not yours. And first this week in verses two to four, we're going to see that we have to live by committed prayer to receive the provision that we need. That's what we're going to see this week. And next week, we live by God's wisdom to witness and to see God bring fruit. And if you've lived some life, you're going to notice you might feel like you need more than that. Take it up with Paul. This is the application for life in this world that he gives you. Pray and use God's wisdom. Say, well, it can't be that simple. Maybe, maybe it is. Let's begin. In verses 2 to 4, they're held in place by this command that we find in the beginning of verse 2. Paul says, continue. Continue in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue. We'll rather quickly unfold 10 productive elements of continuing in prayer from these verses. The first we see is to be active in prayer. Somebody once told me when the, the font is small on my points, they know it's going to be a long message. <laughs> okay, well, get comfortable. The idea is for there to be a contractual obligation with yourself that you will not allow yourself to get away from prayer. You bind yourself to continuing in prayer. Paul's describing a necessary, intrinsic motivation. This is not something forced upon you. This is something that comes out of you. You, you devote yourself. You push yourself in this direction. I think we could agree as believers living a busy life that there is possibly nothing easier to convict one another upon than to say, hey, are you praying enough? I mean, how do you answer that question? <laughs> you're either, you know, ungodly or you're lying. You know, how do you, uh, it's, just, it's a tough one. But Paul, he doesn't assign an amount of prayer at all. It's not an amount thing. It's not a how many boxes have you checked kind of thing. Instead of it's a commitment to prayer, a devotion to prayer, a, a dependence upon prayer. That's why we're to be active in prayer, because we depend on prayer. Paul says we should busy ourselves with prayer. Aren't people busy these days? As someone who makes a living trying to get people to volunteer for things, at least that's how I feel sometimes, I hear a lot of excuses. <laughs> Some of you are really good. Some of you are really bad. But I hear a lot of excuses. But let me tell you one I have never heard. Sorry, Pastor. I can't help because I am so busy praying. Never heard that one. And if you bring it up, you're probably lying. But <laughs> Paul says, Christian, if you're going to thrive in this world, if you're going to live 
For Jesus, in this world, you have to be committed and active and devoted to prayer. And we should all take heed to this. Don't Christians find prayer so often like a caboose? You, know, do you, you don't ever see cabooses anymore, but so the old days, some of you remember a caboose came on the back of a train, you know, now they've got like a little blinking red light that does its thing, but that's how prayer is. It can kind of be left off or we can tack it on with a, just a little blinking red light. If it works, it works. If we run out of time, not that big of a deal. Just kind of move on. Maybe things like a prayer and praise meeting, you know? It's kind of like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up with that later. We'll jump onto that train some other time. Seems like people would rather wait in line at the DMV than come to a prayer and praise meeting. I'm not trying to convict any of you in particular. I'm trying to convict all of you for sure. Honestly, we have the Africa Children's Choir here, and it's standing room only. People are filling up the lobby everywhere. We have a prayer and praise meeting. We have the God of the universe here that we're going to worship. And it's like the holy huddle. What does that tell us about us? I think it should tell us something. It should tell us something about us. It should tell us something about us as a church family. Perhaps we think we can make it on our own. We got it. We're good. I don't need that night. I need other nights, but not that one. Paul says, continue. Be active in prayer. Some of you have to start and then get active and continue in prayer. Make a continual, habitual pattern of your life praying. To continue in prayer, to be devoted to prayer, to be committed to prayer. It's a posture of the soul. It's a proclamation of my life that says very simply, I am not enough. I have to get what I need. Do you have what you need? No. Where will you find it? More study? Dylan's? Where? Pray. Say, I need God, and go to him and get what you need. To be known by our lack of prayer more than our need of prayer is to consider ourselves sufficient. Who says you're sufficient for all that this life brings at you? Nobody? You cannot thrive in this world and please God without him. He won't let you because it's not good for you. You have to get what you need from him. Not from me, not from brothers and sisters, not from fellowship, not from discipleship, not from ministry, but from God through prayer. Be devoted to prayer. And I love how Paul uses this word to explain how Paul uses this word in Romans chapter 13, verse 6. You don't need to turn there. But he uses this word devoted to explain how governments pursue taxes. They are devoted to getting their taxes. They make it a habit of getting their taxes. They pursue the taxes. When you don't want to give them, they tell you you have to. Christians be devoted to prayer. 
Paul says you're to be devoted to prayer, committed to prayer. We find our example for our active life of prayer in the early church. They needed prayer to function. They needed prayer for their provision. They didn't go somewhere else. They didn't look for something else. They didn't try to develop a skill. They they just went to God and begged from him. I wonder, have we matured beyond the need of prayer? How disgusting in God's sight that would be. Acts 1.14 describes a mutual devotion to prayer throughout the church. How often are those among us who are known as prayer warriors like, we're proud of them, they're praying, they do their thing, and we think that, that, that them praying is good, which it is, but we think it's enough for us? Who's to continue in prayer? All of us. We all must be active in prayer. Acts chapter 6, verse 4, our example as church leaders is very simple. The apostles laid the priorities of their ministry very clearly. Acts chapter 6, verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And I'm afraid too many church leaders in too many circles today think there's an or in that sentence instead of an and. Like, well, I'm a preacher. Y'all pray. The apostles would have found one without the other. Hypocrisy. Instead, be active in prayer. Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Our command, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. To pray at all times is to live in a continual consciousness of God. Yes, God is everywhere all the time. Absolutely, I understand that. But through prayer, we surrender to that truth. And we submit ourselves to needing God's presence, to needing God's provision. Be constant in prayer, Paul says. Being constant in prayer is where everything we see, all that we experience, all that we decide, our every choice is run through the grid of prayer, not in a transactional way, but in a relationship way. We live in deep and perpetual awareness of and surrender to the Heavenly Father's direction for our life. When we're tempted, we hold the temptation back by prayer. When we experience wonder, We praise God through prayer. We see the good and the beauty of his creation or the good and beauty of a relationship that he's given us. We immediately thank the Lord for for what he's done for us through prayer. When we observe the evil around us, we pray that God will bring justice and mercy and help. When we encounter the lost among us, we pray that God will use us as the means to make much of himself and save them. When we suffer trials and we suffer testing, we turn to God in prayer as our hope and our refuge and our deliverer. Paul says, Colossians 4, 2, continue in prayer. Be devoted to prayer. The goal is for our life to become a continual stream of prayer, a perpetual communion with our heavenly Father, all painted onto the backdrop of our soul and the circumstances he places us in. To continue to pray or to pray at all times consistently. Set our minds on what? Things that are above, not on things that are on earth, Colossians 3, 2. How do you do that? Continue in prayer, Paul says. Not just in church, not just at home, not just at work, but everywhere, all the time, every day, and everything. Continue in prayer. How do we do that? Well, we never let the lips of our soul stop speaking prayer. Second, notice Paul qualifies our prayer and says we, we must, Colossians 4, 2, we must continue steadfastly in prayer. Really, this is 
continue in steadfastly are one word. It means be resilient in prayer. Steadfast is a compound word. It means with strength. Pray with steadfastness. We're to persist obstinately in prayer. Have you ever told a toddler no? What do they do? Not my house, but other people's houses. What do they do? They persist obstinately. That's how we're supposed to pursue prayer. The threat of anything doesn't stop you. You just go for what you want, but we're supposed to want prayer. The idea is earnest contention, a passionate pursuit, a never giving up attitude in prayer. I wonder, do you know anybody who's committed to a hobby or, or a craft? Christians, they'll spend decades of their life trying to master. I'll pick on some of you. Golf. It's easy for me to pick on. I hate golf. Countless hours mastering golf. Never giving up. Sparing no expense, newest, greatest, latest technology, trying to master golf. Or possibly, maybe even more profitably for those around you, maybe there's another thing that you try to master. I know ladies who've spent their life seeking to master the perfect pie crust. Over and over they try, changing tiniest little things. You know, cold water and then cubed lard and then cubed butter and then they freeze the flour and all these kind of tricks, you know, sea salt, whatever salt. So why? We devote ourselves as Christians to years of hobbies, temporal pursuits, and we theoretically and practically give up on prayer because it's hard or awkward. I'm not a natural prayer. So we just don't do it. Paul says, be resilient. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And likely here, petition is in mind because thanksgiving is coming. Paul says, make a habit of your life going to God persistently and asking from him what you need for him. Friend, never considered a repeated request to God something that bothers him. He longs for us to depend on him. Oftentimes, he makes us depend on him by making us wait on him. And our resilient prayer in the face of seemingly unanswered prayer is a great proof of our need for God. God has saved us to need him. And remember here, Paul commands, continue steadfastly in prayer. Realize Paul is closing his letter to the Colossians. And he says, continue steadfastly in ministry. No. Continue steadfastly in Christian activity. No. Continue steadfastly in caring for the homeless. No. Those are not bad things. But prayer is the best thing. How do we live in this world serving our supreme and sovereign Savior? By always being in need of more of him. And how do you exercise that need? Continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul says literally, the prayer. What's he trying to get at with the prayer? There's a whole bunch of opinions like many things. 
We don't know exactly what Paul meant by the prayers. Quite likely Epaphras, the guy that went to Paul and asked for the letter, Epaphras is a good pastor, so he probably helped his people with regimented understanding of prayer, just like the Jews used to do. They would have certain things they prayed for on certain days of the week, certain months, probably carried over into the early church. We know it did in some places. In essence, Paul is seeming to promote a regiment of prayer. Get yourselves a habit of prayer. Discipline yourself to pray. Don't we need this? I'd say the top two reasons Christians don't pray is number one, they don't practice and it feels uncomfortable. Number two, they don't think they have the right heart to pray, so they just don't start praying. How do you think you're going to get the right heart to pray? Ask God through what? Prayer. You must pray yourself into the right heart. Beg God to help you. When you think, I don't have the right heart to pray now, that's the most important time to be in prayer. God, help me. Oftentimes we need the discipline of scheduled time to force us into what's best for us, which is prayer. I think we should understand this idea, Paul, here. I'll hold it lightly, but it's some sort of a discipline or a strategy of prayer. Don't just willy-nilly through your prayer life. I don't care if you have a journal. I don't care if you wake up at the same time every morning. But have an understanding of this is how I pray. This is how I pursue the Lord. This is how I beg God for what I need. If the goal is to always be praying, this is Paul's prescription for that. Strength from God and strategy for God's glory in prayer. Concentrated, purposeful prayer at specific times is the best fuel for continual prayer at all times. You don't start praying. You can't always be praying. So discipline yourself to start praying. Paul says, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Being watchful in it. Third, we see we must be vigilant in prayer. Be watchful in prayer. This is not like keeping your eyes open because it's hard to stay awake when you pray. And this is be watching for something. What matters, what God is doing. Be watching for what God is doing. Be vigilant in your prayer to see what God is doing in your prayers. Be alert. Be awake. The New Testament uses this word to constantly point our hearts and our eyes and our minds to heaven to see when is God doing what God has promised to do. That's where our hearts long to look. If our prayer and our hearts don't beat to the Maranatha drum, we are too comfortable in all this world has to offer and we don't want what's coming. That's a problem, Christian. The watching believers are to, are to watch their own life in light of the return of Christ. They're to watch their prayer requests in light of the return of Christ. They're to watch the heavens to see when God is coming, not the newspapers. The watching believers are to, to watch, but what are they looking for? They're looking for Christ. They're looking for what God is doing. Friends, don't be complacent. Be awake. Be vigilant in the last days. Be vigilant in your prayers, longing for your King. Our active, committed, continual devotion to prayer that Paul calls for us should be characterized by a, a full and robust sense and expectation of Christ's return. Why do we do communion? Because we proclaim the Lord's name until he comes, his death until he comes, because we know that he's coming. That governs, that directs, that motivates our prayers. That's the affection of our heart that drives our life, that Jesus is coming back. I love Revelation 16, 15. Revelation 16, 15, it points towards the great return of our Savior. And we read, behold, I'm coming like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who stays awake. That's our word. Keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Keep your spiritual PJs in the drawer. Stay awake. Keep your spiritual car hearts on. Work. Jesus is coming back. Pay attention. Look for him. Stay watchful. Be vigilant. Don't get lulled into the vacation of the fun of America. Look for Christ. Long for Christ. Pray for his return. Fourth, our prayer should be woven on the loom of thanksgiving. Everything that we pray should have an element of thanksgiving because how could we not be thankful for what God has done? Unless we're not paying attention. Unless we're not being watchful. Unless we don't continue in prayer. The humble, reliant prayer of God's people is always thankful. No matter the circumstance. The more often you petition God to make much of himself, the more often you will see God answer that prayer request, the more often you are able to be thankful for what God is doing. But don't we often ask of God something and then wait on him to provide so that we can then be thankful? That's not Paul's instruction. Thankfulness comes with vigilance. Longing for what we do not yet have because we know that it's coming. By faith, we believe that what God has promised, we know that it's coming. So how can we be thankful for what we don't have? Sometimes that's a question that burdens our heart. I think it's a great question, but a question that betrays an attitude of prayer that is often wrong. We view prayer too often as a tool for a transaction. It's like a glorified email presenting our request to God so that he can fulfill it and we can get what we need. It's like a vending machine in the sky. Prayer is not a transaction tool. It's an instrument of relationship. When prayer is about getting something, thanksgiving has to wait. When prayer is about communion with God, thanksgiving is in all that we pray because we're communing with the God of the heavens and the earth. He hears us. How can we not be thankful that God hears us? Maybe you think, well, I don't really have a lot to be thankful for. Maybe you're in a stage of life where you look around, and besides this amazing church and your amazing pastor, you struggle to find reasons to be thankful. I thanks for not laughing. First service laughed at me. I was like, come on. But maybe the hopes and dreams of years ago are gone. Maybe family is gone. Maybe friends are gone. Maybe your work is unfulfilling. You think, what do I have to be thankful for? God hasn't answered my prayers. Friends, the inward focus of our downcast spirit often draws the gaze tighter and tighter and more focused on self and farther and farther from God, making thanksgiving impossible. Instead, look to what God has done. Look to what God has promised. Look to what is coming. I mean, who are you? If you've repented, you've been saved from God's wrath by God himself through the work of his son that he sent because he loved you and he killed his son and spilled his blood so that you could have forgiveness of sins. And then he says, here's what I need you to do. Believe. And you can't believe, so I'll give you faith. Now believe. And you believe and you have life in him. And then you think, I have nothing to be thankful for. Friend, stop looking at yourself. Look to what God has done and be thankful. Worship him. Worship God in prayer. When you worship, you can't help but be thankful because you're rehearsing the beauty of what God has done. Thanksgiving 
will come and it will be continual. But what exactly are we praying? Well, fifth, we see from Paul to be others focused in our prayer. Look at verse three. At the same time, pray also for us. So Paul says, continue in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. His example is to be others oriented in our prayer. Our prayers are not just for us. In fact, Paul seldom prays for himself, but often was recorded praying for others. At the same time, verse 3, pray also for us. This is intercessory prayer, putting aside your needs, picking up your brothers and sisters' needs, and bringing them to the Father, praying for them. This demands a heart that is not focused on self. This demands a heart that cherishes Others. This is a man's heart that does battle with the me monster. I'm going to focus on you. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is a hard verse to put into practice. But what if we put this verse into practice in our prayer life? What if my passion in prayer was your benefit? What if the passionate pleas of our heart were for the benefit of others? Read Paul's prayers sprinkled throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1. Read these prayers and look at them and think, who is Paul praying for and what? Does Paul love his Savior? Does it come out in his prayers? Absolutely. Does he love gospel advancing ministry? Does it come out in his prayers? Absolutely. Does he love churches? Does it come out in his prayers? Absolutely. But what's his passion? His passion is almost always for not a what, but a who. For others. For others to know Christ. And if they know Christ, to walk in Christ. Paul was Christologically focused, others focused. And somehow, don't lose this, somehow always more satisfied than many of us ever are. If you want to have what you need in this world and you want to get your provision when we pray for other brothers and sisters and we love to see them love and follow Christ, who benefits? We do. We model the heart of our Savior. We model the wisdom of Paul to live, to pray for the good of others, and then we're blessed. How does intercessory prayer bless the prayer? Because real intercession is an identification of weakness and inability on our part. When I'm bringing you to the Lord, I'm saying, I can't help them. I need God to help them. When I'm expressing my dependence on the Lord, what do I get? I get him. When I come to God and say, look, I got a partnership for you. 60-40, what do you think? What do you get? Nothing. Intercession is a heartbreaking reminder of our desperate plight as sinners, but it's also the beauty of what God offers to sinners, which is himself and all the provision that we could possibly need. It's a path to understanding and finding and relishing our only real and true satisfaction is found in Christ. Remember Paul's closing encouragement to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Get ready for battle. 
but not for yourself, for each other. If we're going to live in this world that is not ours, we need people praying for us. If we're going to live in this world that is not ours, we need to be praying for people that aren't us. And when we live in this world that is not ours, we realize that we can't help everyone. I can't fix your problems. You can't fix my problems. And we can't make everything go away and be better. What do we need? We need Christ. We have to beg the Lord on each other's behalf and we fall under him in dependence. We find ourselves dependent on him, the only one who is able. And what do we find? That he is able. So what do we pray about for others? If we're praying for others, then surely we pray for their good, we pray for their comfort, we pray for their health, we pray for their wealth. Maybe for the right reasons at the right times, those aren't wrong prayer requests. But what we see in Paul's example is a model for us to follow. What should we be praying for? How do we pray for others? We pray for what we cannot do. Paul says, hey, pray for us. But he says, pray for us that God would open a door for us. Middle of verse 3. That God would open a door for us. You have to appreciate the context. Paul had no ability to open this door. He was in where? Jail. Why? Well doing what Jesus told him to do. Got the short end of the stick, you might say. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Paul was in prison, chained to the circumstances that were a product of nothing but his love and faithfulness to Christ. But we expect different. And what's he tell us to pray for? Middle of verse 3, that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul had no way of opening this door for himself. No way to get himself out of this predicament. He was not able to unchain the Praetorian Guard from himself. He couldn't find a way to be free. Only God could. But notice the passionate prayer that Paul wants us to pray, or wants the Colossians to pray, to open a door where it was barred shut. It was not for comfort. It was not for ease. It was not for autonomy. It wasn't for freedom. It wasn't for security. What was it for? It's for the gospel to declare the mystery of Christ. But before we get there, realize we must be in prayer for what we cannot do, namely, advance Christ and his glory and his fame through the gospel. Too often we can look around and see a burdened, terrorized, agonizing humanity and think, oh, it's so terrible, so unfortunate. But what are we praying for? That God would stop the struggle? We look at things like the Middle East, and if we can get past geopolitics, we think, oh, that God would bring a quick resolution. Why? Why do why you pray for that? So that people can die in peace of old age and go to hell? Pray for peace in the Middle East. Pray for resolution. Do it. Absolutely. But don't fail to pray for God to do what only God can do, which is to bring life to death. Pray for God to raise up missionaries. Pray for God to stir the hearts of young people who are watching uh, terrible atrocities and war unfold on Twitter. Pray for their hearts to be crushed for the lost. 
Pray that God would have their souls recalibrated and their passions reoriented and their studies reinvigorated so they can do something useful and take the message of Christ to the land of darkness where Satan's throat's on all those people. Friend, turn your platitudes on each other's behalf into prayers for God's glory to advance. Think strategically about what Paul is asking, not for comfort, not for riches, not for wealth, but for the gospel to go out so that he can have the opportunity to preach Christ and the mystery of Christ. So we pray for others that God would do what we cannot do. We pray for his pur- purpose, purposes, verse number seven. There are times when we don't know what God is doing or why. A lot of times we don't know what God is doing or why. Circumstances point to confusion. Situations lead us to suspicion that God isn't doing anything. But we know we must be in prayer. So prayer for what? For God to accomplish his purposes. He's told you what he's doing. And Christian, don't forget that though God loves you intimately as a father, his world is way bigger than you. His purposes are as big as he is. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, God is concerned with the salvation of souls. God is concerned with the proclamation of his gospel, and God is concerned with the publication of his glory to the entire world. What are we praying for? Psalm 79, 9, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. That's what we're praying for, the glory of God for his name's sake. Do you think Paul could have added some comfort prayer requests here? If I was Paul, I'd have been like, can you pray for this Praetorian guard guy? He's crabby. He prayed for the food. It's terrible. Friends, our prayer requests are too often too puny because our passions are so often so centered on ourselves. And so our prayers orbit in around a two-foot circle from our heart. But our passion is Christ, and our glory is Christ's glory, and the beauty of his gospel and the burdens of the lost that are dying around us, those are the things that draw out from us prayer requests that God wants Prayers that God longs to answer and prayers that we're too chicken to pray. Because what? He uses us. What did Paul want? He wanted Christ to be preached. Why are you here on earth? To raise a family, to work hard, to engage with fellow believers, all good things. But here's the thing. If that's all, there's a problem of omission in your life. You've been saved out of this world to be sent into this world, to bring the message of life that you have from another world to this world that's dying forever. The mystery of Christ, Paul calls it, is ours to declare. Not only do we have the mystery, not only do we understand the mystery, but it's our privilege to preach, to declare. Will you? If you can't, 
if you won't, if you don't, may I ask you why? Do you pray that God will give you opportunity? I can't fathom a more ready request God will answer in my life than to give me an opportunity to preach the gospel to someone who needs it. That's a scary prayer request. Brings about unexpected encounters, unwanted appointments, but God answers that prayer request for an opportunity to preach his son, to declare the wonder of Christ, to see the purposes of God unfold for the glory of God and the good of man through the unraveling of the mystery of Christ. The problem is not opportunity. The problem is not preparation. The problem is not education. You've got enough opportunity. You know enough if you know the gospel. If you're saved, you can preach it, but do you? The problem is in here. The problem is we're scared to pray that God would open to us a door for the world to declare the mystery of Christ. Maybe because we don't want the world to know we're not like them. Well, pray that prayer and he will open a door. Either here in Hutchinson or Haiti, maybe Manhattan or Malawi, God will open that door. Far away or maybe in the car on the way home. God will open that door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. We must pray to this end. Which end? The glory of God. Eighth, notice this phrase in verse 3, the mystery of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? This is not new to the letter of Colossians. Paul's already told us, Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. He introduced this idea the mystery of Christ was his stewardship to make known for God. That's what it meant for him to to minister, Colossians 1, 26 and 7, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's a whole bunch of gospel glory for salvation. That's what it is. The true preaching of the gospel is the preaching of the mystery of Christ revealed. It was hidden, but now it's been revealed. The Gentiles used to understand God about as well as you can understand him using a Ouija board. They had no idea. They couldn't understand. Their, their eyes were darkened. But now God has made clear the mystery of Christ. It's been revealed. It's the hope of glory. It's Christ in you. All of these things have come to crystal clarity. Out of darkness, out of that confusion, out of that sinful depravity, out of the backwardness, out of the ignorance, came the gospel that went to the nations. It's now revealed. The secret is out. You have what the world needs. What are you praying for? You have what the world needs. What we need is God to act and bring the power to the proclamation to produce his glory. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith faith. How do they know what their faith is in? How do they hear the gospel? They can't hear the gospel unless what? Somebody preaches. So pray for his glory to be made known to those who are lost before it's too late. With our eyes in heaven, what do we see? That Jesus is coming back. Tomorrow is not promised. This afternoon is not promised. How we pray. What our prayer requests are. They tell us a lot about ourselves. They tell us a lot about what we want. They tell us all about what we love. So what do you love? Our, 
our prayer requests always for ourselves? Or that God would open a door for us to preach the mystery of Christ? What are our prayer requests for? To build a bigger building? To get more money? Have a lake home? Have an extra car? What? Do we have enough courage to pray like Paul? Do we have enough love to pray like Paul? Do we have, we have enough courage to pray that God would save the 136 million men, women, and children of the Sheik people group in Bangladesh? We're out of that 136 million, 0.00% believe. That's a small fraction of the lost in this world. But do we have the faith to believe that God could move in those people? That he could activate the beauty and the wonder of the gospel to, to save sinners? through our obedience, through our faithfully following and going into these open doors that he opens for us? Or do we think, well, that's somebody else's job. Is that too big for God? I'd say that's an others-focused prayer that we cannot do that is for his purpose and his glory. Here's the struggle with these prayers. Again, the more we pray them, the more obvious it becomes that God is asking us to be obedient. God is calling us to be the means, not somebody else. So we turn chicken. We won't pray that. We don't want our kids to do that. We can't do that. And then, unfortunately, we're very happy with our six-figure dual-income family situation. God's going to have to find somebody else. Yikes. Friends, when our heart knows that Jesus is coming back, what are we living for? Not this world. Not tomorrow. But today. Be careful of the golden handcuffs of American ease and comfort. It's as if we don't pray these huge prayers because we're satisfied with what we have. Pretty good. We're all right. And we're afraid that God may answer them. But what could be better than using this life for him? I think Paul probably enjoyed his life more than any of us. He saw the sights, you could say. He went on cruises. He was intimately equated with many different cultures and judicial systems. <laughs> Second Corinthians eleven twenty five. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was stoned once. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day left to sea, etc., etc. Who would choose that life? I'll tell you who would choose that life. Somebody who has a life of contentment and satisfaction and a burning hope for what's coming next, full of joy and thanksgiving. Paul isn't asking the Colossians to pray anything for him, that he doesn't pray for them, or that we shouldn't pray for ourselves. These are the kind of prayers that should dominate our life. Pray for elections, sure. Pray for health, sure. Pray for the obedience of your children, important. But compared to others knowing and growing in Christ, compared to only God doing what only God can do, compared to his purposes advancing and his glory being proclaimed and his fame spreading across the earth, what are we praying for? Friend, you pray for what you love. So check your prayer requests. What do you love? Who do you love? Check your prayer life for your real Valentine. If it's you, break up. 
Ninth, if we're going to receive from God what we need by prayer, we must pray in our weakness. Look how Paul flavors this prayer recipe with reality. At the end of verse 3, on account of which I am in prison. Paul's no ivory tower, spiritual elite, monastic ascetic. He's a man of the people. He's suffering. He's struggling. He's afflicted in every way, but not crushed. He's perplexed, but not driven to despair. He's persecuted, but not forsaken. He's struck down, but not destroyed. He understands. He embraces his weakness. And he prays in them and through them. You think being a widow keeps you from faithfulness? Maybe you have struggles and weaknesses in this life. You think being old and retired and having a bad back keeps you from fruitfulness? Some of you are like, is he talking about me? Yeah. You think your depression keeps you from being a tool in God's hand? You think being a young mom always busy with a new mess keeps you from doing what God has for you? You think working a job that sucks the life out of you keeps God from profiting from you? You think your anxiety prohibits God from employing you? Not according to Paul. Sitting in jail. Prayer is, after all, a posture of weakness. Prayer is a posture of inability. Prayer is a posture of I can't, but God can. Prayer says I'm unable, but God is able. Prayer says I have the wound, but God heals the wound. Prayer says this heart is broken, but God heals the broken heart. Prayer says I can't, but God can. Prayer is designed for struggle. But too often, we don't pray because we're what? I'm proud. I'll get it fixed, and then I'll go to God. You won't get it fixed. When you're weak, Christ is strong, absolutely, but you won't know Christ's strength until you pray. Go to him. Beg him. Finally, in prayer, we pray for our obedience. Look at verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul says, uh, what are all these prayers for? How do we get from God what we need? So that there at the beginning of the verse, so that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. We pray for obedience. What was Paul's obedience? That he might speak clear the mystery of Christ, the beauty of the gospel, the wonder of salvation, which is how we ought to speak. Friends, we were saved for good works. Our lives are not passive. They're active for the glory of God. They're active displays of God's work. Christians lots of times are saved thinking they're like a 401k where God set it aside and preserves us and watches us and invests in us and pours into us and admires us. And someday, he might withdraw a tiny little bit, but he's never going to exhaust us. That's how we view our lives. No. We're, we're saved by God to be the quarter in the sticky, chubby little hands of a five-year-old standing in front of a gumball machine. We're designed to be spent for him and for his glory. Always spent for him. Lives of obedience to him. Seeing him do what only he can do. And you say, well, I'm just not, Paul's an apostle, this is not me. Okay, let me ask you, do you talk? Do you talk to anybody but yourself? If you do, then this is for you. Verse three, he wants, he wants God to give him an opportunity to, to declare the mystery of Christ. Declare. Verse four, this is how he ought to speak. Same word. Both the same word. It's from laleo. It means to talk. It's the most common, simple, rudimentary, ordinary, plain word in the Greek language for communicating with your mouth. Not preaching, not proclaiming, not announcing, not even declaring, just talking. Laleo. 
The onomatopoeic word sounds like, or it means what it sounds like. Baby babble. Simple, plain talk. You can talk, preach Christ. Paul is saying and begging others to pray that his, he interacts with the souls around him in prison, that he would talk about Jesus to these people. What a simple prayer. By such an incredibly godly and gifted man, I wonder what our lives would be like if we had the courage to pray what Paul prays. Oh, that God would stir our hearts in this world that isn't like us, in this world that isn't for us and doesn't want us to leverage our whole life to live for our Savior and King. How do you thrive in a world that isn't yours? You live for the world that is yours. And that world is coming. That day is coming where one day we will not be outsiders, but we will be with Christ. Until then, we pray. Let me pray and then you'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. We thank you for the affections that you give those of us who believe. I pray that you'll cause them to burn in our hearts, that our lives will not be satisfied until we're living always every way for you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.